You're listening to The Catholic Podcast. So welcome back to The Catholic Podcast. I'm Chloe Linger, and I'm joined here today by Joe Heschmeyer, my regular co-host. Hey, Joe, how are you doing? Doing great, Chloe. Good to record with you again. So it's good to be back on the recording side of the mic, but today we're going to be talking about what it means to reach young people in the Catholic Church. And Joe, you suggested this topic, and I love it. Can you Tell us a little bit about how it came to be. <laughs> so I was in line for confession because I'm a terrible sinner. <laughs> and place to be yes, terrible sinners. it was Tuesday uh, afternoon and I was maybe like eighth or ninth in line for confession. And I looked ahead and I realized that everyone in front of me, but one person was younger than me. And I'm 34 years old. So I'm not, I think I'm not old yet. <laughs> And I thought, okay, well, this parish is doing something right Mm -hmm. to have a bunch of young adults. uh, And by young adults here, I mean this very loosely. I mean, like, anywhere from late teens to mid-30s. Like, Mm -hmm. we're, you know, I'm I'm using it very poorly defined, very broadly. Yeah. Basically, people who I consider my peers or younger than me. Yeah. That's the totally subjective way I've decided to use the term. I was like, wow, I'm one of the oldest people here. And I got to thinking, well, what is this parish doing that attracts people on a Tuesday? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, they have a 6 p.m. mass, yep. which is huge. Yes. Because so many mass times are built around either the priest schedule or the schedule of working adults sometimes, or the schedule of retirees retire most people. often. Retire yeah. People. And so yep. it's, it ends up being retirees who go. Right. But they were going to go anyway. Right. So a fair amount of retirees go to this 6 p.m. mass because they have the most free time. But it was great because they... It gets a good group of young people together. I'll go ahead and name check. It was the Holy Spirit Catholic Church here in Overland Park, Kansas, which is your parish. parish. And de facto, uh, Anna and my (laughs) parish as well, because we we live equidistant from that parish and the one whose boundaries we're actually in. Tuesday night after this mass, like a group of young people get together Mm -hmm. and they have dinner and good conversation together. And it's amazing. Like this is exactly what I think a lot of parishes want. So as I'm looking at this, I decide to just... uh, Post a Facebook note. Yeah, from from church. Uh, <laughs> while I'm in line for confession. While I'm in line for confession, Father, I can just add it to the list. Father, forgive me. I was on <laughs> Facebook while I was supposed to be doing my examination of contents. But it was a good... Cause <laughs> I like to think I scratched the itch of the curiosity and still had plenty of time to ruminate on my sin because the priest is Italian and talks to every penitent <laughs> and it takes a long time. The typical Italian. Yes. Uh, a great confessor, by the Wonderful way, Father Miracle. Confessor. So the question I asked was this. I said, young Catholics, age 35 or under 35 or so, I have some questions for you. Number one, why are you Catholic? Number two, what draws you to Mass? And I clarified there. I mean, both generally and specifically, why uh, do you go to a particular Mass or why do we go to a particular parish? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then number three, what do you wish the powers that be knew or did differently? Uh, number four, what's something being done well right now in the church? And number five, any recommendations for how to better reach millennials and younger? Mm. Uh, so the idea was just like, how do we, everyone talks so much about how do we reach this next generation? But it seems like there are so few effective strategies that I see. Mm-hmm. And it was that was really confirmed for me in the responses that what people are asking for and what they're getting are often like, dramatically different yes so i I guess let's just i'll share uh some of the answers for each one and then we can just kind of talk about sounds good let's do it what came up so number one uh why are you catholic a 34 year old guy named mike answered he said i'm catholic because i became convinced that it's the church founded by christ and it's where christ is i grew up protestant but joined the church in 2014 because if the resurrection of jesus is a historical fact as i believe it is then Catholicism is the only faith that makes sense. Okay, now this is going to be something of a theme mm-hmm. for yep. the answers. They could kind of all be, not all, but most of them could be encapsulated by, I'm Catholic because it's true. Like right. it turns out people aren't just choosing this because it's their favorite liturgy mm-hmm. or because they live closer to a Catholic church than an Episcopalian church right. or because they're bored on Sundays and like to uh, spend their time in liturgical settings. They're Catholic because it's true. Now that, for most people, hopefully is like glaringly obvious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so often we speak and act as if that's not the case, as if we need to dress the church up. But like, if you want to know what's working, what's working is the part Jesus did. Right. What's, what's not working is all the parts we, we do. do. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, uh, Genevieve says, I'm Catholic because God gives me the grace to be so. Mm. Adam says, I'm Catholic because I'm convinced that the Catholic faith is true. God dragged me kicking and screaming across the Tiber. Wendy says, I'm Catholic because I believe that what the church teaches is true and that the church not only provides me with the means to have the most intimate relationship with God possible, but that I can because God himself provides the means. I yeah. love that. I love that because so often when talking to Protestant brothers and sisters, they ask if you have a relationship with Christ. And I think what's so beautiful about Catholicism is yes, you're called to relationship with Christ, but he calls you to intimacy with him. And it's like this deeper, richer uh, relationship that he's calling you into. Yeah. I was talking with a Protestant yesterday, actually, and trying to really hit on this, that when we talk about orthodoxy, it's easy to make religion propositional, mm. meaning uh, there's a bunch of theological claims and you say, yes, this is true. Yes, this is true. That, yes, this is true. And that is great as far as it goes, but that is not nearly far enough yep. because at the heart, it really is relational. And Catholics have a bad rap, I think, ironically, uh, for not being about relationship, being about rules and everything else. But within certain branches of Protestantism, I think Reformed, uh, like Calvinist mm -hmm. Protestantism, is often most guilty of this. There can really be an obsession on theological debates that aren't oriented towards relationship. Yep. And so people just fall out over whether or not you should have instruments in worship or what. But mm -hmm. with very little uh, framing or orienting the conversation towards what is drawing us to Christ in right relationship and really building on that union. Well, the heart of this, for the Catholic at least, is the Eucharist. Right, and right. this is from the very earliest days of the church. Uh, we've mentioned this before on this podcast, but it's worth talking about. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, when he's responding to the Gnostics, doesn't say, don't be part of their religion because they don't believe in the incarnation. He ultimately says, abstain from communion with them because they don't believe in the real presence. Yeah. That the heart, the beating heart, of Christianity from the earliest days is this encounter intimately in the Eucharist. Yeah. So I, I love that Wendy really does do a good job talking about that because she goes on to say, we're talking about the most intimate relationship with the very source of all reality. Ah, I love the way yes. she said that. And the result is being able to live in love as God does. I want to say that again. The result is being able to live in love as God does. It mm -hmm. isn't just you say yes to God and then you go be a nice person. Yep. So many of us were brought up with just be a nice person catechesis. Yep. And the result was that people took away, I should be a nice person. And God doesn't really fit in the equation anywhere mm -hmm. because if all I'm supposed to be is a boy scout. Who needs God to be a boy who scout? Who needs God to be a boy scout? Right, right. And I think there's such a beauty and she's speaking into this so well is that there is a reason that the catechism calls the Eucharist the source and summit of our faith. It's because it's at the heart of it. It is the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. That this, like I said, it's a beating heart of the religion. Mm -hmm. And everything else uh, should be understood in the light of that. Yes. It's easy to get caught up in these historical disputes about, well, how do we know if papal infallibility is true? What about this one time in age 73 where a pope said that? It's like, hey, is that really the Eucharist? Mm -hmm. Is Jesus really here? And in a way that he's not within Protestantism? well, then you should really take this seriously and live towards that. Going on from Wendy's comment, she says, uh, the Eucharist is how and why I've always felt welcome in any and all Catholic churches, regardless of whether I speak the language or whether anyone there looks like me or even likes me. And I love that too, because so often we try to create the communion within the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I wish Catholic churches had more welcoming people and yes. that there was more done to kind of welcome uh, newcomers. See, it's making Maeve sad just Maeve's to talk like, about why this. Why is there no community? <laughs> exactly. Why don't people say hello? Yes. But at the end of the day, like, let's not forget what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that we are one body because we partake of the one loaf. Yes. And that it's not the other way around. So the deepest and most serious communion that we have, one with another, is from our common orientation towards Christ. Uh, I think I've used the image before of like a, a bicycle wheel. That as you draw closer to that hub, Jesus, that you also draw closer to the other spokes. I was talking to Meg Hunter Kilmer before this conversation. She came over and shared morning coffee with me. And she is a, she's a young Catholic, but she's a missionary hobo. So she hasn't had a job in the past seven years. And she goes around in her car and just goes and talks to others about Christ. And she was saying how 
for a long time, it has felt like she doesn't have a home, like she doesn't have a physical home. But she was saying that that's the Eucharist for her. And so it breaks her heart when churches don't have perpetual adoration or when churches lock their doors at times where people could come in because that's where her home is. Like that's where she belongs and how beautiful that was. And that's not just true for Meg, who's this missionary who wanders and teaches others and, and is accompanying others in their relationship. Like that's true for all of us. Like we may have yeah. homes, but that's our home. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with St. Benedict Joseph Labre. Huh. One of my favorite saints who's a homeless saint in Rome. He had wanted to join a religious community, wanted to become a priest, and he kept getting rejected. Mm. And so he had left his home in France and he really just discerned that he was called to live a life of poverty and he was a beggar. Wow. And just like was just constantly in church and became beloved in the community. Yeah. Uh, ended up dying on the steps of the church where he's currently buried. Uh, on, on the steps? Yeah, it was on the steps of the church. And it's incredible. So you can go to this church in Rome and there's a beautiful like marble statue of him over his tomb. Uh, and then on the outside, on the steps, there are still homeless people begging today. Yeah. And this, they have been for centuries mm-hmm. in this spot because how can you possibly say no after you've just been to like venerate the, uh, the tomb of a homeless saint. So to give a few more of these responses to why am I Catholic, uh, Ethan Stevie, who is a focus missionary said, I'm Catholic because I was raised Catholic. I've stayed Catholic because it is the one holy Catholic apostolic church founded by Jesus Christ, yada, yada. <laughs> There's no other church or religion that has a better claim to being true, basically. So again, I mean, we're really seeing a theme from this. Another guy, David, goes a little more explicitly where he he talks about how these doctrines are true, how they make more sense. He looks at things like baptismal regeneration, confession, and the Eucharist, how the Catholic claim makes more sense than the Protestant. Even Eastern Orthodoxy has some, what he calls irreconcilable epist- epistemic issues that mm. come down to the lack of a visible head. Huh. Having said all this, yeah. he then adds, I do think that the current hierarchy is pretty corrupt and I'm Catholic despite not because of them. But tradition in the faith of our fathers is worth it. And one thing that's really sticking out is again what I said at the start, that the God part of this is why people are Catholic. The clergy part or the institutional part People are not saying I'm Catholic because I had such a great experience with my local priest. Mm -hmm. No, it may be that that plays a role. And I'm sure that you could find people where that is the story. Yeah. But it's worth recognizing what does seem and what doesn't seem to be worth. All right. How about number two? What draws you to mass? I think you were struck by one of the things with this, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you talked about what drew people to mass, I thought like my automatic answer in my head was like the Eucharist. The Eucharist is what it was why I'm Catholic. It's why I show up to mass. But I was really struck by how many people uh, took the opportunity to talk about liturgy here. And one overarching theme that I saw was a lot of people who would be in our age range, our peers, talk about their love for the Latin mass and more of the traditional mass and how that is the mass that they're drawn to as younger Catholics. Exactly. So there's this idea and I've heard it. So I went to uh, a Good Friday liturgy in the latin mass uh-huh. latin mass is not really right because not technically i guess yeah it's not technically a mass so whatever you want to call it a latin liturgy colloquially referred to as a good friday mass uh and afterwards i had a, a relative say oh was it just like you and a bunch of young people and i thought oh, it was hilarious because i was probably on the older end of the people who were present like the median age there were tons of young families mm-hmm. there. yep i mean in the place was packed to the gills where it was literally standing room only wow and so I stood for like the really long Good Friday liturgy uh, and it was just, it's on fire. But I think the perception outside of the boundaries yep. is that this is just like a concession to old folks. But when you actually talk to young people about what they want, no small number of them mention either the Latin mass or at least a more reverent, more beautiful Novus Ordo mass mm-hmm. than what many parishes currently give. Yep. That if you're just like banging on the piano to do like a Hagen Haas song, chances are you're not lighting the next generation of yeah. Catholics on fire because yep. it's, it's terrible. <laughs> I don't know how to say this, but like the God we worship is the culmination of truth, goodness, and beauty. beauty. And you would never think of having a mass without truth or a mass without goodness, but we seem to treat beauty as totally yes. optional yes. to the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And it isn't. It's not a well-celebrated mass if it isn't beautiful. Right. Yes, Now, there are different ways the mass can be beautiful. And it has some intrinsic beauty that you can't uh, totally destroy. 
but it, I've not for lack of trying. So I want to make a point here that you might be thinking, well, this is just Joe's Facebook friends. So two caveats here, uh, three caveats here. Number one, uh, I did reach out outside my Facebook group. I posted this on a theological like Facebook group that I'm part of. Two, uh, my Facebook group is not just like-minded people. I have nearly 5,000 Facebook friends. This is not a humble brag. Joe is very is popular. <laughs> he has all the... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, cl- close enough. And <laughs> these are people who will happily disagree with like anything and oh, everything yes. I say. Yes. So it isn't just like uh, automatons. Uh, you know, there was an Anglo-Catholic who jumped in. There was an atheist who jumped in on the thread. Yeah. So it's not, again, it's not just total uniformity. Nevertheless, I'm sure I don't have a perfect sample size. However, the USCCB on Twitter asked, if you're a young person who is still Catholic, what has made you stay? Now, a couple things about this tweet. Uh, first, the tweet that they sent out before it had 36 replies. The tweet they sent out after it had three replies. <laughs> This one has 1,500 replies. This hit a chord. And my understanding, we looked up how Twitter sorts replies, and they sort based on relevance. Uh, Since I don't think I'm logged in, it shouldn't be based on people Mm. I know, and in Mm -hmm. fact, it doesn't appear to be. It's based on, you know, which had the most likes or the most replies, et cetera. Right. All of that is to say, when the USCCB asked the same question, they got the same answers. Number one reply, the traditional Latin mass. Mm -hmm. Number two, the truth, when you can find it. Number three, Lila Rose says the Eucharist, all the sacraments, the magisterium, the line of apostolic succession, the good and holy priests, religious and Catholics, like no. Number four, the mass of ages, again, the Latin mass. Mm -hmm. And then it's to clear and sound teaching and so on. But it, it repeatedly, the Latin mass comes up. And when one person makes a reply, other people will reply to uh, what's called bump it. Because the more replies a reply gets, the higher it goes. So these were very popular answers when people did mention the Latin mass. Mm -hmm. So we would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, the role the Latin mass plays and the role more broadly that reverent liturgy plays. Even in my own story, a really beautifully said Novus Ordo mass was huge for helping me go from having kind of a head understanding to a more holistic, like so-called heart understanding of the faith. It's kind of a cheesy way to describe it, but there it is. Mm -hmm. And the priest who celebrated that was a big lover of the Latin mass, which I didn't know at the time, but it informed even the way he approached it. I think so. I get that it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but it does. It is something young people are, are eager and longing for. When I talk to a lot of young people, I recently, we had a conversation with a young Catholic family who we went over to their house after mass and we were talking to them and they were saying that they have really enjoyed the Latin mass liturgy. And one thing that they mentioned that has really come up anytime that I talk to friends who attend Latin liturgies is reverence. Like it's not, it's where, it's where they find reverence. And I think you definitely can find reverence in Novus Order masses, but it's just the, the beauty of realizing that like this mass isn't being ad-libbed. Here we are reverently adoring Christ in the Eucharist and that's attractive. Yeah, absolutely. So while we were having this conversation, I got another reply to this, and I want to add this right here. Live time. Exactly. So a young woman reached out privately. She asked me not to use her name. And so her answer for this, uh, she said convenience of time and music determines where she goes. Mm -hmm. But then she adds, I'll take a hard pass on the 70s, much prefer chant. Mm -hmm. So I, I know very few practicing Catholics who are under the age of, say, 45 who say like, oh, I really like Gather Us In, or I really, but routinely, this is the music that we're kind of subjective to. Right. Uh, even when you go to like a young priest ordination, you can almost tell whether he chose the music or whether some uh, parish person chose the music based on whether or not it's music from the mid-70s. Yep, yep. Whether All Are Welcome is the gathering song. Right, exactly. Yep. Go Make a Difference was oh. the recessional at one of the young priest's uh, first masses. And I felt genuinely bad for him. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I know how he feels about this song. Oh. There's no way this is what... What he picked. Exactly. Bonus points if the He's... parish was clapping to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a slightly off rhythm too. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, oh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Beauty right there. So yeah, okay. So if, if truth is why people are Catholic, mm-hmm. beauty seems to be why they choose the mass that they choose. Again, oversimplification to a certain extent. Yep. But there really is that. Convenience and everything also makes a huge difference. So we mentioned at the top of this, you know, like if 
if your mass times are, are at 615 and you're wanting people who are age 20, you're not going to get them. Uh, likewise, if your mass times are at like nine, you're not going to get people who work, nor you're going to get, you know, so yep. n- at least know who am I setting this mass time for? Right. We just recently bought a house and we had waffled back and forth whether we wanted to buy one in one area or in the other. And Joseph, my Joseph, my husband, not this Joe, likes going to morning mass before work. And one big factor of whether we picked a house in that area was if they had a morning mass that he could get to and still make it to work on time. And there wasn't any. There was none. It was like a little desert wasteland of morning masses that people who work and have a traditional work schedule could attend. And I think that speaks into things. If you want to reach millennials or young Catholics to be more vague, you you have to have things that they can show up at. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we're still in a mode where each parish acts as an independent island. Yes. And so you'll find every parish in an area with mass times at the exact same time, rather than staggering them in a way that works for more people. Mm -hmm. And fine, if you've got like a closed pond of parish people and that's all you care about reaching, by all means, do that. Yep. But if you're trying to reach more people, if you're taking the Great Commission seriously, if you're right. trying to expand your reach, maybe look at what the parish next door is doing and then be smart about it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with confessions. Like if every parish in the county has confessions at Saturday from three to four, anyone working or doing anything Saturday three to four is now blocked out not from one parish's confessions, but from every all parish. All of them. All of them. Those kind of things seem just so common sense. Mm-hmm. Or even just availability in general. If your parish has confession from 315 to 345 on a Saturday and you show up and there's a line and you have things to do and you know that you can't make it or even just, yeah, there's such a beauty of having confession times available. Like if you, do you want to reach younger Catholics? Offer the sacraments yeah. regularly. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So on that note, the third question is, what do you wish the powers that be knew or did differently? There's a really heavy answer to this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I should start with that one. So uh, the young woman who reached out to me in the middle of this podcast privately, the reason she didn't want her name attached to it is because she shares that she's a survivor of assault. Mm. And that going to mass has been very difficult of late. Oh, makes sense. It's one of the things we sometimes don't talk about with the abuse scandal, that it isn't just this was a sexual sin. It's that when you have the terrible abuse of minors, or anyone, vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. and it's done by someone who is so closely associated with the liturgy, with the church, and even in a certain way with God himself, The spiritual damage done there is incalculable. Mm -hmm. And we need to have some healthy way of responding to that. Um, I think it's worth just, I know everyone knows that on some level, but it's worth remembering. Another issue that was raised, uh, a much less severe one, but still important, is gluten intolerance. So people who have celiac Mm -hmm. uh, disease, Uh, who can't handle even small amounts of wheat, uh, they often feel excluded from the Eucharist, particularly if only the one species is provided. Yep. Now, a personal plug, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, my aunt, Sister Jane Heschmeyer, Mm -hmm. and another uh, religious sister of the Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration in Clyde, Missouri, uh, invented the super low gluten host. And those are approved for people even with celiac. Mm. Uh, some of them might still err on the side of caution only received from the chalice, but parishes, I think increasingly have started to supply these. So they're available for those who have a gluten insensitivity, uh, which is a growing number of people for whatever reason. Yep. So just on a practical note, Mm -hmm. (laughs) also as a transition away from the really heavy stuff. I think in some ways this speaks to a deeper issue, which is that, being known as an individual instead of a parish is vague terms, but being known as an individual like Sarah who has a gluten intolerance. And I know her because she's in my parish and I have a relationship with her because I sit down next to her and I, and we sit in the same pew and I know her. That's an issue too, to, to have community where it's not a secret that you struggle with gluten intolerance. It's something that people know because they know you. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. 
And this is one area where I think young people are uh, the guilty party largely. Mm-hmm. That So I just said, you know, a lot of parishes are still operating under this mindset, which they're like a closed pool of people. And back in the like early 20th century, that made sense. You have like right. limited transportation. You have an ethnic ghetto. Mm-hmm. Everyone lives and works in the parish boundaries. They go to that parish and that's probably where they meet their spouse and so on and so forth. Uh, my grandma used to tell a story about how she uh, grew up in the Irish parish, but had a German priest. And it was like mildly shocking. I was like, grandma, <laughs> you married a German. Like, <laughs> but so even between like the mid or the early and mid 20th century, you already start to see this model breaking down. Mm-hmm. We're still operating basically a 19th century, early 20th century model of parish. Yep. That is not the lived experience of people of mid 30s and younger who mm-hmm. are increasingly mobile who, you know, in the last month, if I were to list all the parishes I've been to for mass, I do daily mass. So it's probably conservatively eight parishes, maybe upwards of 12 different parishes right. I've been in. I don't have that same kind of personal relationship. I try to have one parish that's like a default one. Mm-hmm. And then other ones that I go to based on where I'm working that day or fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. That creates problems, right? Like it's beautiful. And so I wish that we could make it easier to coordinate. But it also does create the problem of anonymity. And yes. so it's... I think it's incumbent upon young people to take more of that step to get to know the priest, the pastor, mm-hmm. and form those relationships because they're not going to happen as organically as they used to. Right. I think it falls too, not only on the priest and, and the pastor, but also on parishioners. And I love the parish. I consider it my home, but it took a year and a half before someone said hello to me. And I think we underestimate the, sim- the, the simplicity of just asking someone how their Sunday's going or wishing someone who sits beside you a good weekend. That that goes miles. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just add a few other you know pieces of advice that were being shared. So Stevenson is 23. He says, I wish the powers that be would know what modernization and lukewarm Catholicism is doing to our church and mm. its flock. Guitars and drums in church, obnoxious music and rewriting prayers to repeat verses 10 times in song form. People disrespecting the sanctity of the sanctuary by chatting, wearing hats, and so many other things. Lines for confession consistently being barren, yet lines for communion are full of people with hands in pocket. I wish our universal church would return to the Latin roots, restore the beauty, solemnity, and awe of the traditional Latin mass. So again, we've got, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you see some common themes. Even, I mean, there's kind of a litany of suggestions there. Yep, yep. I want to give one other abuse-related one. Mm -hmm. This is from Lauren. She said that she wished that there would be a more serious accounting of the damage Mm. that was done and has been done uh, by the sex scandals around the world. And that we've really responded in a half-hearted way. She didn't say half-hearted, but you get the idea. Uh, She said, along the lines of being truthful, I'd like to see less sugarcoating. If we do indeed believe this is the truth and the way we're not doing anyone any favors by sugarcoating things or watering things down. Mm-hmm. So I like, I actually like the way she paired those two things. Yeah. That there could be this kind of whitewashing approach to doctrine where we don't really touch on the things we think might make people uncomfortable and a similar kind of whitewashing approach to admitting the scandals and failings of clergy. Uh, this kind of institutional safe face impulse that does not work. It does like face has not been saved mm-hmm. at all. And and yet we still find people who kind of are defaulting into that role, right? Yep. Okay. Number four, what's something being done well right now in the church? The grimmest one of these is someone said, I can't think of anything. Yeah, that one broke my heart. Simon, who is a 17-year-old from Brazil, talks about how he likes that the church has resisted on sexual matters like abortion, homosexual marriage, and women's ordination. This was again a common one. Mm-hmm. Um, Brittany, who is 32 and is a Byzantine Catholic deacon's wife, talked about how uh, there is stuff going well in response to the abuse crisis and actually questioning the status quo that we this this kind of crisis point we seem to have hit as a church is actually really encouraging in some ways because enough people are waking up and saying the way we've been responding to this just isn't working. And she talks about how questioning and discussion are necessary for growth whether we say the current way is ultimately the best or not, mm-hmm. that there's still this, this opportunity to say what works, what doesn't. And that's, of course, the spirit of this this whole question. Yep. Uh, Lauren, who I mentioned before, said, I'm encouraged by the consistent life ethic, standing against abortion and assisted suicide in the death penalty, 
while also being supportive of initiatives to help the marginalized, especially asylum seekers these days. Mm-hmm. What's the church doing well right now? Goodness. Yeah. You know what yes. I mean? Like yes. we who people are Catholic because of truth. They're mm-hmm. longing for beauty and often not getting it. And they're recognizing true goodness. Like a lot of stuff is being done in terms of taking stands on hard issues publicly with public policy or, you know, providing for the poor, et cetera. On the goodness front, uh, there's a lot going well. Additionally, um, Colin, who's 26, says the church seems to be doing much better in regards to welcoming newcomers. I've been greeting more times in the past few years from coming to Mass than I can remember in my whole childhood. I'm also excited to see several contemporary parishes even offering more traditional practices like the rosary pre-Mass. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many young priests really getting back to a tradition with their garb and encouraging practicing a personal prayer life. And then he, he highlights the work of people like Matthew Kelly and Bishop Barron and producing good Catholic literature that can help clear up some of the more controversial parts of the faith that were largely untaught during his younger years. Praise God. Yeah. So I think that is positive to hear mm-hmm. that like there has been, and if we really think about how many good Catholic books have been published in the last 20 years, a ton. A I lot. Mean, the answer is more than you or I know. Mm-hmm. And we've got great work being done from Catholic Answers, yeah. from Ave Maria, from Ignatius Press, Our Sunday Visitor, yep. and so on. Like, there's a lot of good publishing houses out there producing good quality content to help build that part of the faith, fill in some of the catechetical gaps that so many of us have. Uh, and also just maybe even inspiring people with more hope. Uh, all right. One last one. This is from Ethan again, the focus missionary. He says, pretty much every priest coming out of seminary right now is on fire and understands that prayer is before everything. That's good. I love that. So bravo to the young priests. Don't let it get to your heads. But <laughs> that is really exciting. And the part about the primacy of prayer is huge. It can't be overstated. Uh, because so often we can think that it's through our own efforts and it just isn't. And so the more we fall into that, I think the, the more danger we run into. That reminds me, actually, there's one criticism that is kind of the, the bookend of that. One of the people who responded said, I wish that the powers that be would see themselves more as guardians and less as saviors. Mm. And to remember that they were given grace to pass on the gospel and the sacraments. If they don't actually believe what the Catholic Church has taught for centuries, I want them to have the integrity to leave. That was Genevieve. Those are some powerful words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very powerful words. But it, it's a good reminder. That's the flip side. Like, we can want to do everything ourselves. And priests are no exception to this. And in some ways, it can be the most prone to this particular temptation mm-hmm. of uh, putting too much power, kind of having a Pelagian view, or viewing themselves as the masters of truth rather than the guardians and protectors of truth. Mm -hmm. That's a huge temptation to move away from. And the more time is spent in prayer, the easier it is to avoid that temptation. Because you remember, yeah. Humility. Yeah. And you have to be nourished and fed. Mm -hmm. And it makes you less likely to think you're the one who's ultimately calling the shots. Yep. Which, of course. Is the Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Final question, number five. Any recommendations for how to better reach millennials and younger? I love how all of these, if you were to read them, if you go, if you're friends, Facebook friends with Joe, if you were to read them, what people say is why they're Catholic is beautifully reflected in this fifth answer. Like, how can we reach out to others? Like, if they say it's the Eucharist, then they want more adoration. If they say it's reverence, they give examples for how that can be put into the liturgy and things like that. So I think that's a really beautiful consistency that you see across these answers. Yeah, that's true. Uh, That's a good insight because it shows a little bit of interior awareness. I mean, number five shouldn't be something radically different. Mm -hmm. I've made this point before, I think on this podcast, that so often we want big programs to solve the big problems. But when you actually talk to people about what works, (laughs) few of them, none of the people who replied were like, hey, really big, expensive programs Mm -hmm. are why I'm Catholic. Mm -hmm. No. We, we make it more complicated. Yes. In the words of the poet Avril Lavigne, like, why do you have to go and make things so complicated? <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't have to be, <laughs> I apologize to listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Your age range is showing. <laughs> My age range is showing. Is that not cool anymore? Is not Avril for millennials, Lavigne? man. Oh, not for man. millennials. 
But in all seriousness, I love that people recognize that the things that work for them and for their peers are probably the things we need to be doing more of. Mm -hmm. And those things that they had to kind of work around to become Catholic or to stay Catholic are probably the things that need to change. Correct. So one of the guys who talked about how important good liturgy was to his life talked about the need to go back to tradition. He encouraged taking down projector screens for lyrics. And Chloe is nodding vigorously to this. I, I love my, my good old-fashioned hymnal. Yes. And I think it's probably fair to say a good old-fashioned hymnal is better than a lot of the more modern. New fashion hymnals. Yes, new, new fashion hymnals. <laughs> um, one of the other, so I think a really good, this is again Brittany, the deacon's wife. She said, real relationships in the village environment versus a singular age group focus mm. heal. The younger generation does not need an entire community which fetishizes youth and stifles growth in that community. What we all need is the support, empathy, and understanding of one another combined with orthodox theology and praxis. This is how we grow and heal, whether we are 2 or 21 or 92. Mm. I love that answer because that's the temptation even of the posts that are you know, put up that we can segment off young Catholics, like they're a different species mm-hmm. or that they need everything catered just to them. And that's not how it ought to be. Uh, there was a Protestant theologian, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was now, who said, if the choice is between proclaiming Jesus and losing millennials or catering to millennials at the cost of watering down the gospel, I'll take the first one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus does. So like, no one is saying do anything and everything you can. And in fact, like things that seem overly catered to millennials and young Catholics are just uncomfortable for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Like youth liturgy, youth mass, you just heard what people want. It's not a youth mass. It's not like, hey, can you talk down to me a little more? Can you be a little more condescending? Right. Please treat me as a child. Exactly. Please hold my hand. Yeah. No, treat us as an adult because millennials are adults. The youngest millennial is 23 first, but second, if you want someone to take ownership of their faith, then trust that they have the ability and the response want to take that responsibility. Bishop Barron gave a great example of this where he talked about how uh, his, I think it was his nieces, I almost said daughter, his niece uh, had brought home her books from high school. She was going to a very good Catholic high school and she had these really advanced books in all the subjects except one. Religion. Religion. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't for you which she it? had basically coloring books. No. Dang it. And that, I just had coffee problem. like a week or two ago with a guy who was saying that was his exact same experience. Gosh. That he grew it. up with just the nice Catholicism. And he came away not convinced that Catholicism wasn't true, but it didn't matter whether or not it was true. Mm-hmm. Because he's like, yeah, I, I try to be a nice guy, but like, why would I care if that were true or not? Like, if all the difference Jesus makes is. Yeah, this guy came and he really did tell people to be nice. That is such a watering down. It's right. not, the, the gospel is not in that proclamation. Mm-mm. That's not the charisma. It's not the charisma. So don't fetishize youth. Don't talk down to them. Don't water down for them. But more than that, this isn't just for priests and pastors and people who set the liturgy or the catechetical schedule. This is something that I hope all listeners, regardless of age, will take seriously. That we are mutually enriched by one another. So if you start spending serious time uh, with older Catholics or with younger Catholics, depending on your age, that helps both of you. Mm -hmm. It gives you a different perspective and it can help smooth out the natural generational biases that everyone brings to the table. Like millennials aren't somehow exempt from this. It's easy to knock like baby boomers Mm -hmm. for all of the the bad liturgy and the bad theology that kind of went along with them. Yep. But at the same time, millennials are, are in no way an exception to sin or fallenness or failures. And having a, even the mutual corrective can be good. Mm-hmm. Also, having someone in a different place in life that you can learn from yes. is hugely healthy. So like with a baby, having a toddler in the house is a great way to learn. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't just say, hey, we want these babies to learn from each other. <laughs> well, the same is true at every <laughs> other age as well. Right. Like if all you have to learn from is your peers who are at the same level, None of you know what you're doing. Right. It's just all going to be stagnant. You're all going, again, even more so if you all agree on the main things about life. This is a, an innate problem with what's called the Prussian model of education, which is mm-hmm. where you break everyone out strictly into age segregation. Yep. And we've seen that it encourages bad behavior because you get 14-year-olds taking instruction, not from 18-year-olds or 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds, but from other 14-year-olds right. who 
spoiler alert, make bad decisions. The brain's not quite there yet. They got a little bit to go. Exactly. So I, I love the, the kind of call to break out of that. And I think mm-hmm. it's something all of us can live out, right. whether your parish is totally on board with what we've talked about in this or not. So a few other bits of advice. Colin says, my favorite bit of advice from a missionary standpoint was be good, be holy, and for the love of God, be normal. <laughs> we can tell when parishes are really struggling because they overcompensate with their excitement that we actually showed up to mass and try to plug us into some activity event or worse, a committee. A better strategy would just be to strike up a conversation and ask them about their lives. How long have you been coming to St. So-and-so's? Have you always been Catholic or did you become Catholic recently? Mm. What do you think about when the priest said X, Y, or Z? Invite them to dinner at your own house. Yes. Meals are sacred time. Yes. And then he cites to what Ethan had said at another point, Ethan, the focus missionary, about visiting them at work. Normal interactions, Mm. conversations, and questions that seek to know and understand them before trying to get your parish to be understood and appreciated. And then he says, millennials are hyper-connected through social media and are taken off guard when someone takes a genuine interest in who they are and what they like to do. That's a good point. Like, don't forget, this is the generation that's been marketed to more than any other generation in human history. Mm -hmm. And so if what you're doing to promote the parish feels like another attempt to market and promote the brand, it's exhausting. Right. People have had enough of that. And it makes you look not like some beautiful, brilliant invitation into the love of God and the great mystery, but it looks just like another example of people marketing mm-hmm. to you. It looks like yet another brand trying to promote. You know, it's like that's something that I think non-millennials or people who don't spend a ton of time online may be oblivious to. That it, it does get exhausting. Yep. Yeah, it's easy to spot a program when you've been told that you should join programs your entire social media existence. Yes, absolutely. And the programs that say that they aren't that another program are usually very programmy. So I want to read Ethan's comment because it was alluded to in Collins. He says, be radical. Go to their homes. Visit them where they work. If we want young people to integrate their faith into their lives, we have to take that first step and show them that we actually care about the rest of their lives, not just their Sunday mornings and Thursday nights once a month. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, it's, it's an anti-programmatic approach. It's not saying... These are the times for God and the rest is your time in the secular right, world. Right. It's this radical difference. So a friend of mine, uh, when I was living in D.C., she went to a Baptist church with only like 40 people. She was just exploring. She was trying to figure out where she was religiously. By the time she got home, there was a welcome package waiting for her from the church. Because hmm. she'd fill out some like new visitor card. Or, yeah. Like it just yeah, not yeah. even a new member. Just a visitor card. And they replied with some... It was an incredible show of hospitality. Yeah. We think we could never do that. We could totally do that. Right. It would probably take more individual initiative. Mm -hmm. People would have to be involved in it. Um, And it could easily, if it's not done well, end up becoming yet another program. Right. But the point is that someone took the trouble. And I think it even had like a handwritten, like welcome card, et cetera. That's my favorite. Those things are hugely important. Yep. Uh, my wife convinced me to go to the dentist. That is itself a <laughs> big story. That's another episode. <laughs> yeah, but the particular dentist, she had gone to him and he wrote her a note afterwards. And the note referenced something she'd said in their meeting. So it was just like That's a really awesome. well-written, he welcomed her to Kansas City because mm. she just moved there. And it's been enough time since, I, between when she went and when she finally convinced me to go, that since then we got married, she got pregnant. And so, oh, and the card he wrote me after I went he like congratulated us on the baby and he remembered detail. I mean, it was just wow. like great personal touch mm-hmm. in the business world in the secular world. That's really highly valued. And it's not less valuable in the world of, of the faith. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to have an official position in the church to do Thank it. You. Yes. If you are sitting in a pew, if you're a Catholic, you're called, you're commissioned. You're yeah. If you've been baptized, you have this calling too. And it doesn't take a lot of effort. It just takes intentionality. The, the whole debate ends up becoming, well, we want to keep the sanctuary quiet so people can pray, but those aren't the only two options. It isn't. Right. We need to talk during or right before or right after mass or ignore people. There's a third mm-hmm. option of like being a little creative about it, mm-hmm. talking to people outside of the actual sanctuary, you know, in the area called the narthex, like the gathering space. Right. Uh, or talking to people in the parking lot. I may have mentioned this. I can't remember in another podcast. St. Peter and St. Paul, I think was the name of it. It was a church in West Virginia mm. that I stopped to on vacation when I was traveling with one of my friends. And 
they asked uh, at the end for anyone who was, it was their first time to stand up. And I think they clapped. I mean, there are certain things I would do differently about it. But the important thing is that in the back, outside of the actual like sanctuary and like sacred space, there was a little spot where they had like goodie bags for new visitors and they had like a rosary in there. And I've never forgotten it. Mm-hmm. And then people stood around and they had good conversation outside, just milling about. And there was a strong sense of community. Easier to do in some ways because it's a small church. Right. But those sort of things... Uh, repeatedly are the kind of things people focus on. Okay, I want to give maybe two more. Sounds good. Genevieve says, you reach millennials when you have something worth saying. Mm. There is nothing more profitable to the human soul than the clear and undiminished beauty of the faith. The jargon and newest approach and fad in education cannot compare to the simple truths of the creeds as they have stood for the centuries. So again, don't try to gussy it up make it something that it isn't uh, because it <laughs> it's good enough, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Like, that's a beautiful believe point. in the product, so to speak, and don't try to make it some modification. You're not going to improve it. It's good as it is. There's a great line in the show King of the Hill mm. about Christian music that it doesn't make Christianity better. It just makes music worse. And I think there's some real truth to a lot of our approaches with that. We don't make the gospel better. We just make the whole experience worse for everyone. Right. Okay. Another private message that I got said, the primary difference between Catholicism and everything else is that it has an inerrant claim to truth. Its doctrines have never changed ever in 2000 years. They can't moving forward. There's a lot of comfort and stability in coming to believe and then knowing that fact. The guy who sent that was 30. I think it's just, you know, you'll, I think you're seeing themes here, right? Yep, very much so. Believe in truth, believe in goodness, promote beauty. There's a reason they're called the transcendentals. There's a reason <laughs> they're called the transcendentals. Yep. And they are rooted in, grounded in, and they lead us to God. I think if we do that, we don't need to worry about having like cool neon t-shirts that mm-hmm. say such and such parish, you know, millennial or like class of 08 or whatever. Like, no, just... The things that worked and for the last 2000 years still work if you trust in them. And like we live in a generation of people who are taught that there is no such thing as objective truth. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as objective goodness. And they're marketed to all the time. And none of that feels right. Yep. If you can break through that and say, hey, don't worry. There is truth. There is goodness. There's beauty even. And by the way, we're not going to, we're not trying to sell you something. We're just helping you live in accordance with reality. It's tremendously, I think, liberating and inspiring. And not only are you going to reach young Catholics, you're going to reach people. You're going to reach people. People. It turns out young Catholics are not a different species of human being than every other generation. One final, like, caveat to that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who grew up before Vatican II had experiences with the Mass done very badly in Latin. Mm -hmm. Priests rushing through it. And so their experience of Latin is very different because they're remembering, you know, these 22 minute high masses or, you know, whatever, like I'm exaggerating slightly, but it's this idea of like just very poorly done sloppy mass where they didn't know what was going on and everything else. Mm -hmm. When young people today are talking about the Latin mass, they're talking about priests who choose to say the Latin mass because they love it, saying it beautifully, often with things like missalettes in the pews where where they know what the prayers are, the priest's praying, Mm -hmm. able to follow along in a way that like prior generations couldn't maybe. Uh, So that, I mean, I respect the generational difference, especially in liturgy. You'll see it. You'll see that people of a certain generation are more likely to dislike the Latin mass, more likely to uh, assume it's a thing that's outdated and we we need to move past it. Mm -hmm. Whereas young people without those kind of built in uh, biases, without that kind of negative experience, Approach it in a fresher way. Having said that, same species. They're still looking for truth, goodness, and beauty. Right. Well, thanks for asking that question in the confessional line and <laughs> posing yeah. it. And, yeah. I hope this counts as penance. No. <laughs> for our listeners, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks to everyone who responded to it and, and shared their thoughts and were very vulnerable with their answers and shared their hearts, too. That was really edifying and beautiful to read through. Absolutely. And apologies to those people whose answers we didn't get to or didn't get to in whole. There were, fortunately, way more things said Mm -hmm. than we could really uh, share and do justice to. Uh, We will link in the show notes 
to my Facebook thread. Yep. As you can read all of the comments other than the one sent by private message. <laughs> and also to the USCCB Twitter thread, which I think is really worth the read. Yes. Just to get even more insight. Like if, if you're someone in a position to make any kind of difference, if you're a priest, if you're a DRE, if you're a catechist, if you're, by all means, a musician or a music director in a parish, or if you're just a person who wants to know how can I better reach young Catholics, please listen to these young Catholics tell you, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what's working. Here's what's not. Because you'll, you'll make such a better approach. Oh, I've got to add one last thing. Go for it. So we mentioned earlier the importance of just doing things like having a meal with someone not in your generation. Uh, just going to lunch with them and just hearing about their life and their journey, which is going to be different than yours. And that's good and wonderful. You know, if they're just having kids, you just had a baby. My wife is pregnant. Mm -hmm. Like talking to people who already have kids can be great because you hear what worked and what didn't work in their life. Yep. But here's the big caveat. Don't just sit and lecture the person who's younger than you. Yes. Because that is the one thing no one wants. Like if you just sit and say, hey, you're doing everything wrong. Do it like I did. No one wants to hear that advice. Mm -hmm. I don't care what the advice is. But rather, if you can be kind of affirming, welcoming, and then helpful, offering advice when asked for, for example, works way better. Right. Uh, this we, we tried in the past to get older Catholics to meet with younger Catholics in the professional world. Mm. And the younger Catholics ended up getting frustrated that they just got lectured to yep. when they knew what they were doing by people who just assumed they understood the world of like 2019 business right. better than people actually in that world. Mm -hmm. So that would be the last kind of warning, right? Like meet with them, but don't just assume, you know, more than they do and that you can just sit in judgment over them. Right. Do right. it in a warm and welcoming way. Recognize Christ in them. See how you can serve them. Mm -hmm. And hopefully uh, if you go in with that kind of a heart, both of you will benefit tremendously from it. Right, you'll mutually be able to learn from each other because everybody has a story and everybody has some, everyone has something to bring to the table. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and I'd say the same thing to young people. Like, oh yeah. I mean, yes. when you're going to meet with old people, go with a servant's heart, mm -hmm. see Christ in them, etc. All right, let's close it up. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.